The next investigator I chatted with was Dr. John Weingart for a surgical perspective on this disease, and he began our conversation by presenting a 55-year-old man from his practice. So this is a otherwise healthy guy. Actually, he was at his daughter's wedding. He had had two or three weeks of some change in his personality, some speech issues, and they thought it was just stress, you know, daughter getting married, all these things going on, and had a seizure, got a scan, had a frontal lesion with a lot of brain edema, got put on steroids and got better, and then he started, you know, looking around when he got back to his home in New Jersey for someone to establish a diagnosis, and he came to Hopkins, and we had a discussion in regards to what the likely diagnosis is. And that's oftentimes not a discussion that people have before they have a diagnosis, because who wants to tell a patient that you have a problem that median survival is 13 months, right? No one wants to do that before surgery. Surgeons don't like to talk like that. So, But if you want to talk about putting Gliadel in, then you need to tell them why you think Gliadel would be a good idea. And the reason is, of course, that you know, there is evidence that gliadel with the STU protocol results in longer survival. So not that you have to get that therapy, but that if someone didn't know that was an option, it might not be the best for them. So the fellow came down and we had a discussion. I went over the natural history of what a GBM is. And, you know, certainly it looked like a glioblastoma. I mean, it could have been a lymphoma, but not likely. So I think the discussion was appropriate with him. And, you know, based on that, he wanted to get the gliadel wafers. And his lesion was located in an area where, you know, one could take a little extra brain with the tumor. So the tumor came out, and we were able to take a centimeter or so extra around it. So we clearly were outside the gross disease and got some of the infiltrated brain also. And he had the eight gliodel wafers, and he went home two days later. And then he'll get adjuvant radiation and temodar. And our experience at Hopkins is that if we can tell a patient that at surgery, we will get a gross total resection of the enhancing tumor. If we know in our mind that that is likely, then we would offer that patient gliadel. And in those patients that got gliadel and then had temodar and radiation concomitantly and then temodar for the six months after radiation is complete, the median survival has been in the 21-month time frame. So, you know, that's better than any of the other treatment experiences. Now, it is a selected group of patients because they're patients that we think that we can get a gross total resection. And, you know, you could argue that it's the resection on top of the temodar and radiation that makes the difference. But either way, whether it's adding the gliadel to the temodar and radiation, if you're a patient, you'd like to be in that group of patients because those people are living longer. And so until it's sort of sorted out as to which individual thing makes the appropriate contribution, and I don't even know if it's all that important to know that information, but anybody that can get where the surgeon says that they can get a near total or gross total resection of the enhancing disease, realizing that there's still microscopic disease present, that putting the gliadel wafer in and combining that with the STUP protocol leads to better survivals. And that's been done at other places that with similar numbers, France published their results in an abstract form sometime in the last six months, indicating, I believe, an 18-, 19-month survival in their experience using Gliadel. So I think that it's a viable choice for patients that unfortunately requires a conversation before diagnosis. That was interesting. You said you put eight wafers in there. What's involved in the technical procedure? How do you actually do it? It's extremely straightforward. I mean, it's they look like, you know, the little discs that you might get at communion or, you know, like a dime. You take them out of the little package, you lay them along the wall of the cavity, 
and then you lay some Surgicel over that onto the brain so it holds them laterally against the wall of the tumor cavity, and that's all involved. I mean, it's about 10 minutes of activity. You've already achieved hemostasis. There are some particular nuances about it, Cases where you have a small little incision in the brain that opens up into a big cavity are not the best cases. The best case is to have a resection cavity that's like an ice cream scoop so that you have a wide opening on the surface so it's easy to put the wafers in. You're not causing bleeding by putting them in. And plus, there is an inflammatory response that occurs around the wafers. And you know, if an inflammatory response is trapped because the cortical surface closes over, sometimes that can lead to you know, increased swelling and need to be on steroids for an extended period of time. So we like to have a wide opening at the surface. There's been a lot of talk over the years about if the ventricle is open, you can't use the gliadel wafer. The only time that that is an issue is if the opening in the ventricle is so large that the size of the wafer could loosen and float into the ventricle. There's not an issue with the BCNU getting into the ventricle and being toxic. So it's really just a mechanical issue, which almost never occurs. Any other complications that you can see with this? Any systemic chemotherapy type effects? There's no measurable BCNU in the bloodstream. It all stays local. The infection risk is no different than normal surgery without gliadel. You know, it's good to have a dural closure that's fairly tight because wound healing in the different randomized studies has been an issue in patients that have had spinal fluid leaking, whether that's, you know, contribution of the BCNU that's in the spinal fluid or not. No one's really sure, but regardless, people should emphasize, you know, good wound closing technique. I was really surprised when I saw this case because, you know, people don't seem to talk about it that much. I mean, I don't know, maybe it's just who I'm talking to, but I don't get the feeling it's used that much. I think you're absolutely right. I think part of the issue is that, you know, you have to have that discussion beforehand. And I may be misspeaking in terms of how neurosurgeons practice in the community, but my guess is that they're not managing these patients after their surgery, you know, once they hand them off to the oncologist. And so, you know, there's not that urgency to have the involvement emotionally with the patient. And I think that some oncologists may not be overwhelmed with the data on its effectiveness. And so they haven't necessarily been big advocates either. So if your local oncologist says, well, you gave them gliadel, now we can't give drug X, Y, or Z, then maybe the surgeon says, well, you know, I guess I won't use it then if it's not part of your armamentarium. Well, the only thing I've heard is a lot of times it'll eliminate people from being on a clinical trial. But other than that, I don't know that it influences anything. I mean, you can certainly give radiation and temozolomide. Oh, exactly. And the whole clinical trial thing, I mean, it doesn't inhibit somebody from being on a trial at the time of recurrence, but up front, it could. But if you're a patient, of course, and you found out that you could have had a therapy that may have helped, but you weren't offered it so you could participate in an experimental therapy that had no known benefit... I think that would be difficult. Let's talk about your second patient. The second fellow was about 63 when he was diagnosed back in 2005. He had a left frontal tumor, which was also amenable to resection, complete resection. He had complete resection. He had the wafers placed. His tumor was assayed for MGMT status, and it was methylated. He had his adjuvant radiation and temodar concurrently, and then six months of temodar afterwards. And his scan had some changes related to the treatment that were present in the three to six month, seven month time period after the radiation completed. 
Uh, and it took about a year for those to resolve. And then he was disease-free until 2009. And then in 2009, he had a recurrence. And because it had been so long, and it was a very small focal recurrence, he had surgery to, one, document that it really was tumor, because he had no symptoms. There was really no brain edema around it. And then at surgery, and if it was tumor, an attempt to eliminate all of the gross disease. And he had that at surgery, and it was active glioblastoma. But it's very interesting that at the time of recurrence, oftentimes the gross appearance of the tumor is much different than at its initial presentation. So oftentimes at initial surgery, the tumor is obviously different to your eye. I mean, it's not difficult to tell where the gross disease ends with your eye. At recurrence, often the tissue looks just like brain. You look at it and you send some to the pathologist and you're saying to your assistant, well, this just looks like brain. I said, are we in the right spot? And then they come back and say, oh, there's active tumor here. So it's much more infiltrative at recurrence. So he had that. He went on a clinical trial of atopicide and one of the antibodies, vendetinib. And two months later, there was some change on the MRI scan, but the decision was to continue because it was a small change. Which brings up another interesting point that in our tumor conference, we were talking about this concept of time to progression. So that concept, of course, can be manipulated by the investigator, right? For example, here, the person had a change, but you say, well, they're doing okay. We really don't have anything else. Let's treat for another month or two because we're going to call this not progression. And so then another few months go by, and so it extends out this time to progression. But anyway, so in, in November... There was a change, but it was small. There wasn't a whole lot else to give to him at that time, so they continued that combination. He wasn't feeling that well on the medicine. It was affecting him. And then in March, he had definite progression. And he was started on a vast intemidar and another drug that I didn't write down when he came to see me. So that's just been recently. And on the Avastin and the two other drugs, the scan that was done in May looked better than the scan that was done in March. And he has a little bit of progression of his speech issues, and so that's where he is at the moment. So, you know, it's not an uncommon story, although the initial time between the initial treatment and recurrence is unusually long, but once recurrence starts, this sort of path of the different drugs that people get is a common one, and certainly... Avastin is one that people are getting most of the time, or at least a lot. What have you observed in terms of both benefits and complications with bevacizumab? Well, it certainly makes the MRI scans look better, and patients are able to get down on their steroid doses, which helps their quality of life. And they certainly feel better, and sometimes their neurological deficits improve. It's a short-term benefit in terms of, you know, three to six months at best. And then when the tumor is progressing, oftentimes it's a progression in symptoms before there's a progression on the MRI scan. And then, of course, if the Avastin is stopped, then the MRI scan will look oftentimes very abnormal very quickly. So we have tended to continue people on Avastin in the setting of what's felt to be progression if symptoms are getting worse or the flare abnormality is a little bit worse because, you know, if you pull back on that medicine, then they progress very quickly in terms of their quality of life being poor. And so from a 
really a humane point of view, I think, that continuing the medicine can sometimes be helpful to the patient. How about your last patient, the 58-year-old person? So the 58-year-old fellow was in good health. I believe he had a seizure, and he had a lesion that was not straightforward to resect, okay, in terms of how it looked on the MRI scan. So, you know, I think that the decision by the outside hospital, based on experience, to do a needle biopsy was appropriate, okay, because it was a high-level kind of a resection. It looked like a glioblastoma, though, to my eye when I saw it after the fact. And they did a biopsy, and they called it a grade 3 oligo. So he came down for a second opinion, and we felt that this could be resected and that we weren't confident that the oligo was the right diagnosis. And so he had surgery, and he had a gross total resection of his tumor, of the enhancing portion of the tumor. Obviously, there's still tumor cells present. And it was a glioblastoma. So he went on to get his radiation and temodar, and he got his six months of temodar. And during that time, he got his every two-month MRI scan. And there were changes on the MRI scan. There was enhancement. And even the one one month after radiation, the doctors locally sent it to me, and well, the family sent it to me, but the doctor sent a note saying he needed to be put on Avastin. He needed to be put on another drug. He's failing. And each time just said, you know, be patient. And slowly the scan got better and better. Those little new areas of enhancement never went completely away, however, but he was on no steroids during this time, had no significant edema. He then was five or six months out from his radiation, maybe longer, and so he had completed his adjuvant temodar and had a scan that showed, again, some more changes, totally consistent with recurrent tumor, but, you know, it's always possible he's sort of beyond that six-month window of time, and the local doctors were going to put him on Avastin. So he came down and we took him to surgery basically for an open biopsy to document whether this is recurrent tumor or not and took all of the enhancing tissue out because each time we sent something for frozen section, they said, this is just necrosis. There's no tumor here. This is just necrosis. And the final pathology was treatment effect, comma, quiescent tumor. There was no active tumor present in the specimen. So what's quiescent tumor? They're glioblastoma tumor cells in the tissue but there is no evidence of growth. The labeling index is very low. There's no mitosis seen. So Peter Berger calls that quiescent tumor. And we're actually looking at our experience with that diagnosis. And all the numbers haven't been tabulated, but it's an important question in that if a pathologist sees a basically a, a treated tumor, what looks like a treated tumor, a lot of necrosis and you know, what do you do with that information? Do those patients actually do better than the typical glioblastoma patient? Or is it really just the point in time that you're sampling the tissue and that, in fact, their natural history is exactly the same? Because if they do better, maybe they shouldn't be given more treatment. You know, they should just be observed at that point, because that's what we would do with this fella, is that we would just continue to watch his scans and not give him any more therapy. If, however, he's likely to just you know, pass on from tumor progression at the normal time, then maybe this is the perfect point in time to intervene with another therapy when he really doesn't have a lot of active tumor, when you can almost, you know, give him some metronomic kind of therapy to suppress any tumor cell that's sort of dormant at the moment getting ready to explode. So what happened with him? 
Well, he's still being followed. It's been four or five months now from his resection, from his second procedure that established the quiescent tumor diagnosis, and he's had no further progression. And he's back to working, doing his normal activities. Any other comments about him? No, I think it just, it really does emphasize the value and importance of getting tissue. And I think that particularly in this period of time where the incidence of this treatment effect pseudoprogression is much higher since Temodar and radiation have been combined, much higher. I mean, as you know, if you, I'm sure, abstracts at ASCO, if you talk to oncologists, if you just, you know, search on the web, brain tumor, you see a lot of articles that address this issue. And it's important because if you have a study of 20 patients and 15 of them have pseudoprogression, when you put them on your drug, your drug's going to look awfully good. So it really makes clinical research challenging in terms of new drug development. Interesting. Any other new developments in the field you might want to comment on? Any questions that you get from docs in practice? The questions are pretty much the same as they've been for years in terms of just when is there going to be something that really makes a difference. I think that actually if you look at survivals, there has been a big difference made in the last 10 to 12 years. I mean, you're now talking about some groups of patients having median survivals of 20 months versus, you know, the 9 to 10 months of 15, 20 years ago. You have 20% of patients who are alive at two years when, you know, 15 years ago it was less than 5% of patients were alive at two years. That's a big difference, even though two years is nothing in the course of a lifetime, and none of us would take two years. But still, for this disease, that is progress. And I think that the most common question, I mean, I'm a neurosurgeon, so of course, a lot of times the question goes to the oncologist, but you know the patients always come back to see me, and so I do have dialogues with an oncologist you know, within the institution, but also on the outside who might send me the film and say, what do you think? What should we do? And then you know, I'll, I'll give them what our thoughts and practice usually is, but a common one is, you know, should they start the Avastin now? And it's a very early trigger on that, and I can understand why. Patient does better. Oncologist feels better because the patient's doing better. I mean, that's a natural thing. But it is sort of an end treatment. And there are some hints that it could select for a more invasive tumor. And I think that depending on the location of the tumor in the brain, it's easy to access these often. I mean, patients who have open biopsies are home the next day. They could be back to work in a week. So they're not having a big recovery period of time from this, and it can go a long ways in terms of guiding therapy. And as we get into some of these more specialized, targeted therapies, understanding whether these tumors change with therapy, whether they express different surface markers that could be targeted, whether the MGMT status changes are important. And so I think that that is sort of where the most common question is. Anything new in terms of local or surgical management of brain mets? Well, there are some newer strategies to take them out that are not in common use, but that people have started to write about, you know, heating the tumor, using a laser with a small little hole in the skull, and, you know, using the laser to sort of do non-invasive brain surgery. And so from a technique basis, people are certainly starting to talk about that, and I think they use that as a PR thing more than anything, to be honest. And I think the radiosurgery issue is more settled now, although I do think that surgery has a big advantage in people who have a solitary brain met. Uh, I think that the recovery time is so quick and that even though it is surgery, it's gone. 
I think that the quality of life is better than after radiation if it's a symptomatic lesion. If it's asymptomatic, then I think radiosurgery for a small lesion is appropriate. But if it's symptomatic, I think that surgery, you know, benefits people. I think there's been a lot of discussion about what to do after the surgery, whether that be radiosurgery or resection for a solitary or, you know, if you have two METs, do you do whole brain? Do you do just focused radiation? And I think that the jury is still out on that question. I think that you know, one does need to design some more effective studies to look at that question. I've had, you know, a few patients who have had whole brain radiation who have had no tumor recurrence and, you know, have lung cancer who are alive four or five years later who do have cognitive dysfunction. I've had people who have had gross total resection of a solitary brain met and they get sort of focused radiation to the bed, not even to any obvious abnormality to the bed. And then, you know, two centimeters away, they have a recurrence in three months. And when probably if they had had a larger field radiation, they would have been spared that. So I think that that particular question still needs to be resolved. And I think it's an important one because I do think that there is a tendency appropriately to place quality of life at the top of the priority list. At the same time, when you have a tool that you need to do so many procedures on to make the tool economically viable... I think that that tool tends to get used a lot. So I think that until there's hard information that one approach is better than the other, you know, it's still going to be left up to personal preference. And so I think that's one opportunity for there to be some clinical research.